1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: And hello, everyone, and thank you once again for joining us at the New Books Network. I am David Hamilton Golland, and I am your host today. And uh, today we are speaking with Bruce Iglauer and Patrick A. Roberts about their book, Bitten by the Blues, The Alligator Records Story. And that has been uh, published out of the University of Chicago press. Uh, Bruce Iglauer is president and founder of Alligator Records, the largest contemporary blues label in the world. He is also a founder of Living Blues Magazine and the Chicago Blues Festival. Patrick A. Roberts is associate professor in the College of Education at Northern Illinois University. He is the co-author of Give Him Soul, Richard, Race, Radio, and Rhythm and Blues in Chicago. Bruce and Patrick, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you. Thank you, David.
2: Well, let's get right into it. You describe in vivid detail how you, Bruce, discovered Hound Dog Taylor at Florence's Lounge in Chicago's South Side in 1970 and started a lifelong career in the blues. So what I'd like to start with is what happened before that? What were your musical influences before that fateful evening? And how did you come to be there?
0: Well, my musical influences were uh, very prosaic. Um, I grew up on my mother's collection of Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, and then, of course, on regular Top 40 radio. Um, I was born in 1947, so I heard pretty much all of the early years of rock and roll. And then in the uh, early 60s, I became enamored of uh, uh, the folk music music, Boom that was going on. Uh, not, I would have to say, not with the depth of studying of the traditional music, but more the commercial end of the folk music boom, the Kingston Trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary uh, type, of, type of music. Uh, and I even got myself an acoustic guitar and a harmonica and attempted very badly to be a musician for a minute. In 1966, when I was going to Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, Uh, I heard that there was a folk festival at the University of Chicago, which is the school my sister attended. And I decided I'd go down in January of of 66 uh, because it was a folk festival. Uh, I didn't really look closely at the lineup. I just figured uh, there were a lot of artists. It's going to be good. So I I traveled there. And as part of the festival, I heard Mississippi Fred McDowell, a one man from Como, Mississippi, playing a a guitar with a a metal slide on his little finger, uh, singing some traditional songs and some songs that he had written. And it was the most direct, the rawest, the most emotional music that I had ever heard in my life. And it made me feel as though everything I had been listening to to up till that point in my life was kind of plastic. Uh, I never heard something that was this deeply rooted, and, and it just reached out across you know twenty rows of seats and and grabbed me by the collar and slapped me across the face and said, "Wake up, wake up! This is for you." So uh, with this very limited introduction, I, I went back to Appleton, Wisconsin. I ordered the one. Fred McDowell record that uh, the record shop could find in the catalog. And I began immersing myself in the blues. By the time they actually located a copy of the Fred McDowell record, I had already, uh, which took nine months, I had already bought records by Muddy Waters and Little Walter, uh, by some of the white folks who were performing blues at that time, like John Hammond. Uh, and I was beginning to understand just how huge the talent pool was and how deep the tradition was. You know, it had already been uh, just recorded since the nineteen early 1920s, but of course it had been performed in one, one uh, way or another uh, pretty much ever since black people came from Africa, uh, you know, against their will uh, and uh, had to deal with the survival and life in the South. Um, it, it just, It just grabbed me. So I began coming to Chicago um, in 1968 and 69. I had read about uh, an amazing man named Bob Kester, who ran the Delmark Records label, which was a jazz and blues label, and also a store called the Jazz Record Mart. And I had read that if you showed up at the Jazz Record Mart and uh, asked that Bob would take you out to the south side or the west side to the blues clubs in the black community... And you'd get a chance to hear this music in its own normal environment. So armed with only that information, I took the bus to Chicago and went to 7 West Grand to the Jazz Record Mart, a very small and kind of seedy record store, and met this charismatic guy and listened to him talk. And he was incredibly knowledgeable about music. He was incredibly opinionated. And he was had an opinion about it pretty much every single thing in life. And as I wrote in the book, as I listened to him, I thought, I want to grow up and be that guy. So I began coming down to Chicago almost every weekend. And eventually, um, when I found out that I wasn't going to get drafted and have to flee to Canada or go to Vietnam, I started uh, working on Bob to give me a job. And at the beginning of 1970, Uh, I got hired as the Delmark records shipping clerk and on that basis moved to Chicago and began working in the label and which was in the basement of the store and the store and going out every night to the clubs on the South side and the West side, uh, which were all, you know, patronized almost entirely by black people uh, and hearing this, the blues and just falling more and more in love with it. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite an origin story, but I think we should,
2: let's lay down some uh, basic definitions before we go any further. Bruce and Patrick, can you define the blues for our listeners?
0: Well, Bruce, you go the, first. The, the, the blues is the creation of African-American people, first in the South and later on in the, in the Northern big cities. Um, It's a music that is a folk music, but it's become an electrified folk music in many cases. It's a music that is a very literal in, in its lyrics. It, it's not metaphorical, you know, uh, it, it tells stories of real life. Uh, A lot of them, some of them sad, some of them happy. It's, it's music. Well, when I came to Chicago, you know, I, I had thought, Like many people do, well, the blues is really sad music. And when I went to the clubs and discovered that people were dancing and partying and having a great old time, even dancing and partying to songs that had sad lyrics, uh, I was told by one of the patrons, you listen to the blues to get rid of the blues. You don't listen to the blues to make yourself sad. You listen to the blues to get over being sad. And I discovered it was just such exhilarating music. And it was was exhilarating because it was created by people who were living in extremely difficult conditions with pretty much no way out. Uh, Down south, they were trapped first in slavery and then in the sharecropping system, which made them uh, completely beholden to the white landowners. Uh, They were constantly in debt. They couldn't easily... Uh, leave because uh, they would be running out on their debts. Uh, there was no upward mobility. You know, people did not uh, generally get enough education, for example, to to go to college or uh, get a, a better job than plowing behind the mule. And then over the years, is as especially uh, during the First and Second World War, when a lot of uh, people were drafted and there were industrial jobs in the North, a lot of people, a lot of Black people from The South um, migrated or fled north uh, to to get these jobs, to get out of uh, the the sharecropping system and discovered that although they could get a better job and maybe have some job security, um, you know, like working in a steel mill, for example, that they were still um, confined very much to areas that white people had decided were the only places that black people were going to be allowed to live. So they couldn't rent and they couldn't buy outside of these, the areas which they uh, called the ghetto. And uh, that's the, still pretty much the case, but you know, at, at that time it was even more so. So they brought the music with them from the South. It became louder and more electrified, but it definitely became a, a statement of black people celebrating their own culture and the things, the heritage that they had uh, in common. Now, over the years, you know, people like me, um, you know, white people, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, people in, in other countries and on other continents, uh, discovered this music and fell in love with it, and in some cases uh, tried to perform it. And they took that music that was a traditional African-American music, filtered it through their own experience, uh, in some cases, sometimes they just tried to imitate, but they created what's now a world form of music that started in just this little area of the United States uh, created by these very oppressed people.
2: Thank you. And Patrick, did you want to add anything to that sure. definition?
1: Yeah. one I, Bruce sums it up pretty well. One of the things that um, has always interested me about the blues is... Um, as Bruce was saying, how it's rooted in a very specific lived experience of African-Americans in the South Um, originates uh, in times of slavery. And then, of course, Jim Crow, racism and so forth. And I've always thought initially the blues were an expression of um, or a, a vehicle for expressing one's humanity in a system that was deliberately set up to dehumanize. Um, It it was a way to sort of speak back um, and say, I'm human. And, um, you know, despite, um, you know, the chains that you may be placing upon me. And yet that music, that uniquely American cultural art form, has universal resonance, as Bruce was saying. Um, and that's really interesting to me because I think there's something about the blues that speaks to um, our common humanity. So I think about, you, know, who, who hasn't experienced a broken heart, right? And so when we hear blues music, I think about the pain associated with you know, a bad relationship or a bad situation at work, um, or just bad luck in general. I think that that has um, resonance across, um, you know, our, our various different backgrounds and so forth. So I, I think blues, because it it originates in this very human experience, continues to have resonance, um, you know, across. Racial and ethnic and, and nationalities and so forth, and what a powerful, right form of cultural expression that is, if it has that kind of kind of impact.
2: Well, let's drill down into this question of um, the lived experience, uh, because I guess the most famous um, non-Delta and non-Chicago uh, blues. A uh, grouping of musicians would would be the British blues, and you've written that they lack uh, a lot of that lived experience of the Delta or the the ghetto. And so, uh, I'm wondering if uh, if uh, musicians uh, and artists like John Mayall, for instance, uh, do they become more authentic only by collaborating with African-American expatriates like Eddie Boyd and Shuggy Otis, or do they have a lived experience that they can bring sort of where, where, where's that
0: balance is what I'm asking. Well, of course, everyone has lived experience and uh, people in England and Europe and even in Japan. uh, I, I, it amazes me that they can feel this music sometimes when they don't even understand the words. Some of the collaborations that have happened with British and European musicians um, and American blues musicians have, have been very artistically and emotionally very satisfying. Uh, there's an album uh, when the early Fleetwood Mac, which was a blues band, came to Chicago and recorded with a number of Chicago blues musicians, uh, including uh, the late, great Otis Spann, the wonderful piano player, and, and made records that stand up very well over the years and stand up very well next to uh, records made entirely by African-Americans. Um, I think that, that being amongst the uh, people who grew up in the tradition amongst, I was going to say real blues musicians, um, you know, I certainly would never claim that I, Understood or walked in the shoes of uh, Black Americans, but I've spent a lot of time in you know vans and station wagons, riding thousands of miles to gigs, and uh, spent time talking with a lot of African American people about aspects of their lives that are beyond music, and a little bit of of that experience, I guess, has sort of rubbed off on me. I don't want to overstate that, but. I think I understand more what it's like to be a black person in America than I certainly, than I understood, you know, before I moved to Chicago Um, and, you know, I was a nice middle-class suburban kid in a 90% white suburb. uh, I, I didn't get it. I read about it, but I didn't get it. But being with the people who've lived that and, and, who still find joy in their lives, you know, they're not sitting around being depressed about, you know, yeah, life is tough. So let's make the best of it. It's not life is tough. So let's sit around being depressed and crying all the time. Um, I, I think that, that, that has helped me understand the blues and has helped, you know, the, the musicians, the British musicians or the white American musicians who have spent time with those artists understand it more deeply
1: yeah, you know, one of the things in, in working with Bruce on this book that um, really was eye-opening for me was um, realizing how, how, how much pop- popular music is indebted to African-American musicians and artists. Um, the You know, just the influence of, of blues music um, of course, on rock and roll, and then the, the British invasion, and so forth, and sort of tracing those genealogies, I think is is um, really important because it 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 helps um, it really helps illustrate how entwined um, the African American experience is with American uh, culture. Generally. You
0: know, it's not just it's not just, you know, British blues bands and and early rock and roll, but a lot of the seminal country artists, uh, you know, the Jimmy Rogers, the singing breakman, and and Hank Williams and Bill Monroe, who pretty much single handedly invented bluegrass music, all talked about the black musicians that they were inspired by and that they knew personally and in many cases taught them. Uh, So music has crossed cultural lines, uh, even when uh, people were living in segregation and not next door to each other. Uh, And I would argue that a lot of the roots of country music are based in African-American music, not to mention the fact that the banjo is an African instrument that was adopted by white people.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about your process Uh, you come from sort of uh, different worlds. One of you is an academic and one of you owns a record label. Uh, How did the two of you come together and what was it like to work together on this?
1: Well, I'll start this one. Um, I met Bruce in uh, 2010 at a book release party for Give Him Soul Richard, Um, the book I wrote with uh, Richard Stams, who was a pioneering african-american disc jockey in the 1950s in the early 1960s and bruce came to that event uh, along with his friend um, bob reisman who's got a wonderful book on big bill Brunsie. and uh we were introduced somehow and i i think i mentioned that oh you know um you ever thought about writing a book about the history of alligator records and uh and uh, we, so we talked a little bit about it, and a few months later, we hooked back up and, um, you know, thus began an eight-year journey, about eight years, um, in bringing, bringing the book together.
0: Patrick interviewed me, uh, recorded interviews with me for, I'm guessing, about 100 hours, Easily, and he, then they were transcribed by you know people that we had to <laughs> to pay to do it, uh, and then Patrick was the one who sat with uh, all of this printed copy and the scissors and scotch tape and began organizing uh, what were sometimes rather random thoughts into book form, uh, and then after that we rewrote a lot of it uh, when we the story that we were trying to tell began emerging more clearly. And also when we got feedback from our publisher uh, because I had thought that this was going to be pretty strictly a music book Uh, and the publisher wanted more of the business of the label than I had thought people would be interested in. Uh, One of the things that I tried to do very hard as, as, as this book was created was I wanted to be a camera when I walked into Florence's Lounge on the South Side and heard Hound Dog Taylor and and uh, thought, this is the happiest music I ever heard. You know, this sad music called the blues, this is the happiest music I ever heard, and this band has to be recorded. Uh, and that was in January. I'd lived here, lived in Chicago for about three weeks, and that was in January of 1970. And I wanted the book to describe... What it was like to be in the club, the how congenial it was, how much people knew each other sometimes for decades, uh, the amount of socializing, the dice game out front, the uh, the lunch truck that sold pig ear sandwiches that was parked out front every Sunday. That was the only day they, they had music. Uh, the literally 100-year-old man who lived upstairs with Florence, who had been uh, a member of of the U.S. Cavalry, the Buffalo Soldiers, uh, fighting Geronimo, and lived there, and we celebrated his hundredth birthday there. Mister Hill, the guy who, who wrote notes about every musician who came and went off stage, you know, as as people would come and sit in and jam, um, but wrote these notes in a huge ledger in a language that none of us could read, which he swore was Korean. And he was an African-American guy and it would seemed odd that he might know Korean, but boy, was he good about just chronicling everything that happened. Um, and, you know, the occasional, there were occasionally fights. There was, oh, there was a, um, a stripper who came every, every Sunday, uh, shake dancers, as they're called on the South side and the West side, um, who, would change into um, the the dancing outfit, which of course had removable parts, uh, in the in the restroom because there was no there was no backstage, there was no dressing room, and our speculation about what the actual gender of the person was because it was quite unclear, uh, but. He or she would end up on top of somebody else in the middle of the dance floor uh, as the climax of the uh, of the performance, and all these things that were happening, that were so outside of my experience, and so energizing, so much fun. You know, I I went to Florence's almost every Sunday because it was the most fun I had all week, <laughs> uh, and a great deal of it was because of how happy and exhilarating the music was and how raw it was. And I wanted to to tell that story and to have people understand what it was like to be in the clubs, what it was like to be in the recording studio, what it was like to be on the road with the musicians, uh, more so than I wanted them to hear about me. Um, I'm the least interesting person in the book, in my opinion. Yeah,
1: I, I would say that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce is the least interesting person, but that, that's what's so exciting about the book. And that was, uh, what was so fun about, um, you know, helping Bruce bring those stories alive. And, uh, there are just so many interesting, fascinating, colorful characters in in the book, certainly the musicians, right. I mean, starting with Hound Dog Taylor and, you know, all the way up, you know, through the current roster, um, and so for me, it was an education—just uh, learning about um, the musicians, Coco Taylor, Fenton Robinson, um, learning about Professor Longhair and uh, Johnny Otis, for example, or Katie Webster, who, who uh, you know I didn't know at all—and then um, the very rich cultural history. Uh, if, of the club scene in Chicago um, in the 70s. Just, just these clubs, these blues clubs that dotted the South and West Sides. Just wonderful stories. And so it was really fun to, um, really a privilege actually, to, to, to get to help Bruce, you know, capture these stories and, and capture these personalities and the vibe of the clubs And I I think we did a really good job of that. I think the book really, in a way, vibrates with the vibe of many of those clubs, as well as the recording studios. And so I was also interested in learning about um, what it means to record an album and working with personalities who maybe aren't quite used to being in a recording studio. And so how do you bring out the best? How do you recreate the spontaneity uh, in the studio that made the club experience, you know, so exciting? Um, and, then, and then, you know, other artists that are, are fairly well known, uh, Johnny Winter, for example, or, um, you know, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan makes an appearance in the book as well. So that it just was really exciting, and then Bruce mentioned the part on the business side of the of the recording industry, and that also was eye opening for me. And I think also um, from what I've heard from readers, they find that quite interesting as well. Just learning about the uh, independent record distributorships that existed across the country. Um, Just really interesting stories about an an entrepreneurialism. Uh, Of course, Bruce is in starting Alligator Records, but so many mom and pop on distributorships um, and record labels, for example, trumpet records, which Bruce can talk about. So um, our writing process, it was, I I thought, really quite dynamic. And um, Bruce was really committed to making the pages you know, vibrate with the kind of energy that he was experiencing, um, you know, almost every day in the clubs and in the studios as well. And like any creative collaboration, there are times where we had disagreements about where to put something or how to say something. But, um, you know, in the end, uh, I think we came out with a really, Really exciting book, and in a book that is a cultural history, I would say. It's not just Bruce's story, it's the story of, you know, just so many fascinating, well deserving um, blues musicians and artists and other folks who were involved with the business in various ways.
2: There's even an action and adventure scene.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do tell. Well, I'm assuming that you're referring to uh, the 1978 experience I had with uh, traveling in Europe with the Sunseals Blues Band when we were in a train wreck and ended up uh, in Norway at the bottom of a an embankment uh, with one end of our train car uh, in a in a fjord, uh, you know, in a, in a very cold, deep fjord, uh, and. Nobody able to get to us to help with the the rescuing of people, as well as our drummer Tony Gooden, who was very badly injured. Um, he, he was was cut literally to the bone. Uh, you know, I for some years I had the suitcase that was soaked in Tony's blood, um, and and my finding that uh, that I gone from being the road manager of a band to the road manager of a train evacuation Uh, and, and finding, you know, I, I have to say that, you know, I'm a natural born coward uh, and, you know, I will avoid, uh, you know, life-threatening situations (laughs) whenever possible. But I found myself in a situation where I was the person who, literally had the door to the the exit door out of the back of the train on his shoulder uh, unable to move until the entire train car was evacuated and I was pretty sure that night that I was going to it, since the train was sliding the train car was sliding into the fjord I was pretty sure that I was going to end up dead that night um, drowned in a train car uh, at the bottom of a fjord and yet I managed to find the the courage or the strength to stand there, you know, with this train door on my shoulder for about an hour while uh, the bass player Snapper Mitchum, uh, uh, an amazingly brave man who uh, was a Vietnam vet, um, was dragging people out, uh, injured people out, and uh, kind of if they could stand, they they jumped into the water because that's the only way we could get out or if they couldn't they were kind of thrown in and i had two musicians sun seals and um and ac reed standing chest deep in freezing cold water catching people and dragging them up on the little bank so it was it was the an experience that that helped shape me because you know i grew up i was kind of a Kind of a, a wimp uh, and, an, and certainly a nerd, and I didn't know that was in me. Uh, I also thought that it was wonderful that Snapper, who was definitely risking his life and Son and AC, were doing all this for a bunch of people they had never met and didn't know, including one woman who had... Uh, Spouted out what I could only interpret as in Norwegian as a racist tirade against one of the uh, band members who had come to sit in the compartment with me, and we rescued her too. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how she felt about being touched by black people. Uh, um, it, it was a, a really a life changing experience, and, and the way I, you, you know, write about it is that just sorry.
2: I was saying the way the way the two of you write about it is just uh it's just phenomenal. I mean it just feels so real. Maybe it's that I'm living through a Chicago winter as I was reading the book, but I actually felt the chill uh of the of the water as I was reading this passage.
0: Well, you know, the water was I was standing in water because the water was seeping into the train car as the as the train car moved and uh you know, the the other guys were standing Chest deep in, in water, and by the way, it was the fjord was a dredged channel, so the bottom was not flat at all. It was at an angle, so they were desperately holding onto the back end of the train car while they were catching people. <clears throat> um, I think we evacuated between fifty and sixty people from that train. Twenty, some of them, and twenty or twenty five or so ended up in the hospital, uh, though nobody was hurt as badly as our drummer. And uh, it was, of course, the end of the tour uh, because, you know, we couldn't tour without, without a drummer. So I ended up staying in, in Moss, Norway, uh, for about 10 days until Tony was well enough to travel back to the States. Uh, and I have to say, I was extraordinarily lucky that uh, since we didn't have the, quite enough money for the airfares, that the uh, U.S. ambassador uh, to Norway at that time was from Chicago and uh, knew of my company, and I knew of his company, which was a suburban newspaper publishing company, and they were extraordinarily helpful in getting us back home.
2: And tours tend to operate uh, quite often on these shoestring budgets, right? And a couple of shows fall through or you can't make it, and the whole thing might fall apart.
0: It's it, Especially at that time when I was developing musicians, I mean, I'm still doing this to some extent, developing musicians who were pretty much completely unknown off of the south side of Chicago. You know, when I recorded Hound Dog Taylor in 1971 uh, and, you know, two, two recording sessions uh, totaling about eight hours, um, he basically, he was just playing a few small taverns, uh, in, you know, within a few miles of his home. Um, he had been to Europe once as part of a package tour, but he had never even played on the North side, which would be the white side of Chicago, much less gone on tour um when when Sun Seals, who was with me in the train wreck, uh, when I found Sun Seals, he couldn't even fill clubs on the south side. he was brand new from Arkansas uh he was desperately poor. I mean, when I first saw him, he was playing on a borrowed amplifier, uh, with a borrowed guitar, uh, because he didn't even own his own equipment and building those artists, you know, what, what they got paid to, to go to Europe or for that matter, to, to go anywhere was pretty minimal. And if something fell through, like you said, if one date fell through, you know, the whole trip could be negative numbers or break even, uh, and then there were the nights that it was difficult to get the band paid, <laughs> which didn't happen often, but it did happen. And you know, sometimes we found ourselves surrounding a club owner and basically uh, uh, threatening him without actually, you know, th- bringing up physical violence uh, to try to get paid.
2: And uh, I imagine a, a lot of bounced checks over the years as well from people like
0: that A uh, surprisingly small number because mostly we insisted on cash <laughs> <laughs> smart move
2: well it seems like the book uh you know i think patrick alluded to this um it really is more than a memoir it's a it's a cultural history of the chicago blues of the last half century is that an accurate assessment
0: well, it's, it's a broad assessment. I didn't set out to write a cultural history, but I realized that, you know, I recorded Hound Dog Taylor, um, you know, over 50 years ago now. It uh, doesn't seem like that, but, but it is. When I recorded Hound Dog Taylor in 1971, um, the last Robert Johnson recording session uh, had happened um, 33 years before that. So... For people, when I talk about Hound Dog Taylor, who sadly died in 1975, um, when I talk about knowing Hound Dog Taylor and hanging out with the guys uh, and being in clubs like Florence's, this seems often as remote to younger readers or fans as if I had met the person who recorded Robert Johnson or been in the juke joints in in the South in the 1930s. Um, It's... It, I didn't intend it to be history, but it's become history. Sadly, the clubs, the 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 bars, mostly little bars on the south side and the west side that had blues um, are almost all gone. Uh, you know, blues became an old music uh, in the black community. Uh, you know, other kinds of music became popular. Um, you know, soul and 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 then hip hop, um, and blues became kind of grandpa's music and then great-grandpa's music. Uh, now, there's been a revival of interest in blues amongst some younger African-American people, but it's not a cultural revival. You know, you don't turn on radio stations that are uh, basically wanting to broadcast to African-American audiences and hear blues. That doesn't happen. Uh, there are some of the best young blues musicians uh, in the country are signed to Alligator, but the talent pool is is small, so this music has ceased to be a popular music of the the inner city, you know, the black inner city, or of the Deep South. And so I didn't know that I was in an historic moment. Um, you know, when I came to Chicago, uh, a number of, of great blues musicians, um, who had been part of the Chicago blue scene, like little Walter and Sonny Bo Williamson and Elmore James were all deceased by that time. And I thought I'm here in the later part of the music, which is true. But for the people I, I tell about, you know, being in any one of uh, literally probably a hundred clubs that I went to over, over the first few years I was in Chicago, you know, to them, it seems like, I was there during the golden age, uh, and I didn't know that this wouldn't last forever. It's really um,
1: striking, I think, uh, in in the book how the the landscape changes over the fifty years. So, Alligator Records celebrated its fiftieth anniversary last year in twenty twenty one, and fifty years is, Bruce suggested, is a long time. And a lot changes, and the book is a really, I think, important chronicle of how certainly the club scene in Chicago changes. I mean, that's certainly a cultural change. How the music business changes over fifty years. Um, you know, Bruce starts out in 1971 and he hits the road with a trunk full of of um, Hound Dog Taylor records, and he drives from. LPs. Thank you. And drives from distributor to distributor, to record, uh, to, uh, radio stations and so forth, tries to get some radio airplay, then goes to the distributor and says, look, I got radio airplay, um, to today, you know, having to deal with, with online streaming services. And, you know, I that's quite a shift. Um, the 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 changes in the in recording technology. When Bruce records Hound Dog in 1971, they basically are mixing. As they go,
0: isn't that right, Bruce? Yes, it- we, I couldn't afford multi-track recording, so we mixed the record as it was being recorded. So there was no fixing later on that was possible. And of course, everything was recorded live in the studio. No no overdubs, nothing, No, nobody coming back and recording a new solo or anything like that. Uh, just basically right out of Florence's onto tape. Um, and it, I mean, that was what I could afford so I heard the band a hundred times and I could tell the engineer, you know, this part needs to be louder. That part needs to be, you know, to sound a little brighter, you know, less, less mid range, more high end. And, uh, you know, the vocal needs to be louder or softer. Um, But it was mostly what the musicians did. It wasn't what I did uh, to, you know, to make the record sound great. It was what the musicians did to make the record sound great. You know, these days I'm recording on, digital on Pro Tools, which is the most common digital format, uh, I have literally an unlimited number of tracks. So if I want the, the vocalist to sing the song 25 times and then pick the best syllables, which is literally possible, from each performance and piece together a vocal, I can do that. Uh, I can fix, and literally I can, I can, if somebody hits a wrong note, we can digitally tune it up. You know, make it the right note, uh, and all of this was completely impossible uh, when I started out. Yet, still, I make records like I made Hound Dog Taylor records. Not that I that I mix them as I go, but rather, I don't don't lay down a uh, a drum track and then lay down a bass track, and you know, I get all the musicians together in the studio in a big circle, and we record as live as we possibly can. And when we change something, it's to make it more like what they intended to play rather than, you know, the mistake they may have played. Um, It's still, I still want to capture as much as I can that live energy, that feeling that can only come when everybody's playing music together, when they're feeling it in their bodies, you know, when the sound waves are hitting them, not just through their headphones, but through their whole their whole person their whole their whole body, um, and, and I want the musicians to be excited by each other. I also want to even though I rehearse records that I produce, I want to make sure that if the band leader gets excited and wants to play three more verses of solo, that the musicians are all prepared for that and watching and know that. Hey, this is where the vocal is supposed to come, but clearly it's not coming now. So we're just going to bear down harder on the instrumental part. Uh, I still try to do that, and that's not the way most pop records are made these days. But I don't care <laughs> the way blues records <laughs> should be made.
1: Well, and I really think of that as the the alligator ethos. Actually, that i that idea that you're trying to capture uh, in the studio the the spontaneity and the the energy and the the, you know the the sweat um, of the live performance. Um, I for me that's that's kind of what helps define the alligator sound. Um, you know another really interesting piece of the book that deals with the recording is you really encounter a who's who of um, sidemen. You know these are the musicians who weren't the band leaders who didn't necessarily. Um, have much name recognition, but who were, you know, in the rhythm sections, for example, laying down rhythm guitar tracks or, or drum tracks or um, and so forth. And Bruce mentioned a few in relation to Sun Seals, but that's a really interesting um, piece of the book as well is, is getting a glimpse at the, at the Chicago blues, I guess, community. Um
2: you were talking about the technical
1: evolution
2: over the past 50 years. Has there also been a musical evolution in Chicago blues from Hound Dog Taylor to, say, Shamika Copeland?
0: Um, yes. Now, the blues is a traditional music, so it evolves slowly. Uh, Shamika Copeland still, who is, is now in her early 40s, but I, I first recorded when she was 18, uh, still uh can does definitely enjoy traditional blues, older styles of blues and occasionally she's a singer and she occasionally sings those types of songs. but you know blues has always been been dance music and I didn't learn that until I started going to Southside clubs because it was the black people who danced to the music much more than the white people uh, the white audiences. And as dance has, Dance beats have changed. Blues has changed rhythmically. Uh, When, when I was first hearing blues, it was pretty much the kind of traditional beats that were played down South, you know, in the 1940s and fifties and sixties. But, you know, now things have gotten funky and you can hear blues that is, you know, pretty much uh, right up to the minute rhythmically. Um, At the same time, the kinds of stories that the blues tells for the most part, because they're stories of, of love, both gained and lost. Um, And then there are also blues that speak to other issues, um, you know, issues of, of what's going on in the world or or in the lives of musicians, you know, work issues and political issues and, and social issues. Um, And that's grown more and more um, as I think, the The black community has become more directly, I was going to say directly spoken or directly outspoken in expressing um, its concerns and grievances. Uh, you know, they, when when you think that if you say you know the boss is is isn't is a jerk, uh, and you're in Alabama in 1940 you know that if that's overheard by a white person you may end up at the wrong end of a, of a noose uh, whereas mm-hmm. if you say you know I'm black people aren't treated like white people at at the place where I work now you know you can you can get a bunch of people out in the street you know protesting that and speaking up about it because um, it's you know you may end up you know, at the wrong end of a police baton, but you're less likely to, to end up dead. Um, not a, not always, but uh, you know, not if if Kyle Rittenhouse comes to your to your demonstration. But uh, but for the most part, if people can speak up now. So that more and more social issues are being addressed in blues, as well as rhythmically. Um, you know, things are have become more contemporary, but even with the modern audiences, even with um, the younger black musicians, when somebody lays down a straight-ahead slow blues you know, that could have been um, performed in, in 1960 um, or even earlier, you still have that moment when, if, if, if the performance is working right, when everybody kind of sucks in their breath and, and is just moved and touched, you know, and, and sometimes the slow ones are more emotionally satisfying than the fast ones. hmm
2: mm-hmm.
0: What is the future for the blues? Well, the blues has ceased to be a pop music in the black community. As I said, that doesn't mean that there aren't you know, very fine young black performers, like, for example, on on Alligator, um, Selwyn Birchwood and Kristone Kingfish Ingram, who are two of our younger artists. Um, And then we've got some artists who are also evolving, even though they're not quite as young, like Shamika Copeland, who is a different singer singing about different subjects than she was when I recorded her 20 years ago. Um, So blues is now a world music, and it means that it's going to be performed with honesty. I I, I was going to say validity, but that isn't quite the right word. I mean, validity is what happens when your music is honed by, um, as we were talking about, uh, you know, before before we started recording, when your music is honed like Hound Dog Taylor's was by um, being a sharecropper, you know, and and living on on the whatever money the the boss man would advance you, so that you could buy seed and, and plant cotton, and you know, getting up and driving a tractor or plowing behind a mule, and then you know, in Hound Dog's case. He was run out of Mississippi by the Ku -Ku -Ku Klux Klan uh, and slept in drainage ditches while he fled. And then coming to Chicago and working, you know, basically, you know, bottom of the social rung uh, factory job while playing for tips in the Maxwell Street market on the weekends. Um, That kind of life, nobody now is going to be able to capture and put into his or her music. Um, thankfully, the oppression of black people, though still very much a reality in our country and in and, uh, and some other countries, um, is, is, still, is still the case. It, it, it isn't the case that black people are held down by systematic oppression like segregation and like inability to get a decent education. Um, it's still... It's still really tough in the United States you know being being a black person it's less uh uh death risking maybe than i than it was you know fifty or a hundred years ago um so we're gonna see more artists who are singing about contemporary subjects other than uh men and women. we're going to have continuation of blues adopting rhythms and grooves and maybe chord changes that aren't traditional, you know, my feeling is that if the music calls itself the blues and it feels like blues, that it doesn't matter if it has a traditional blues structure or even traditional blues instrumentation. You can legitimately perform blues on a synthesizer. Uh, Not particularly to my taste, but, uh, but you can make honest you know, real blues music on pretty much any instrument. I think for blues to have a future, it has to continue to evolve. It can't continue to reproduce what's already been done. It can venerate what's been done. But for example, Selwyn Birchwood, whom I mentioned, um, does a song in the style of Muddy Waters, except he's singing about police brutality. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think that that, neatly ties the contemporary subject to the traditional music. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think that will continue to happen. If the, if the music doesn't evolve, it will become a museum piece. Uh, like New Orleans jazz has become a museum piece. That's what I don't want to have happen. And it's my personal mission to locate and record those artists who are bringing the blues into the future and who will be the defining blues artists of the next generations.
2: Patrick, anything to add yeah, on you that? You know,
1: I the way I think about it is I, I think, well, you know, as long as human beings walk the earth, blues has a future because of the way the blues speaks, again, to, to the human experience. And, and, you know, it'll look, it'll look and sound quite different perhaps, but fundamentally um, I think it will continue to um, be present and continue to be, you know, a, a vehicle for, you know, expressing, you know, some really fundamental human
0: emotions. You know, blues, blues was created for by black people for emotional healing, you know it's it's to make your life better to make your life tolerable to uh to if you if if things are good to make things better um it's it's all about the emotional impact and as long as people need emotional healing whether they call it the blues or not this music will continue because the human need for emotional healing continues and a lot of popular music just isn't directed that way. A lot of popular music is sentimental. Blues is anything but sentimental. Blues is always about real life and uh, real life in its good and bad forms. And that's one of the reasons why it continues to resonate with people. Uh, it's it's an anti-sugar-coated. The book is
2: Bitten by the Blues, The Alligator Record Story by Bruce Iglauer and Patrick A. Roberts. Uh, Bruce and Patrick, what are you working on now?
0: Well, one thing I won't be doing in my life is working on another book. This one (laughs) took about 10 times more more hours than I anticipated, Uh, and and it was a very exhausting experience. I have plenty of stories I'd like to tell. I just have to figure out how to tell them without, without having to write them down. Um, but my, you know, my job right now is I'm still running a business. Um, you know, I still have to have a business that makes money. Alligator started with twenty five hundred dollars. That was all the money I had, and I had to turn that into a business. So now we have a business. You know, that has three hundred and fifty releases. That has. 12 full-time employees uh, and that is bringing music to people literally all over the world. As I said earlier, my job right now more than any other job is to find and record the artists who will define the blues for the future. I have a roster. I keep a roster typically of, of 16 artists and bands um, you know, sometimes 15, sometimes as many as 20 uh, and some of those artists have become quite mature uh, in years, as as have I, much to my amazement. I keep forgetting how old I am. Uh, and those artists' careers aren't going to, recording careers aren't going to last forever. And who comes in their footsteps and carries things forward the way those artists carried things forward is crucial. There are very few record labels that are committed to this genre of music. And unfortunately, you know, some of my friends who had labels either retired and sold their labels or in some cases uh, died. And so I'm almost last man standing. So a great deal of responsibility falls on me to carry the music into the future and so I, I think about that literally every day. I'm listening to people every day trying to find the next important artists who will create that healing music and who are proud to call it the blues.
1: Patrick. Yes. Well, um, you know, these, these last two books of mine were detours into Chicago's musical cultural landscape. And, uh, it was quite fun for me and, and, uh, as I said earlier, I'm just so grateful for to Bruce for allowing me to be part of that story, the Alligator Records story. Uh, right now I'm working on a book um, on museum education, actually. I'm a museum educator um, by training. I was education director at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago uh, a number of years ago. And so I've kind of returned to that work. Um, I do think there's probably a book to be written about Chicago's, uh, you know, the, the studio musicians in Chicago who um, have their fingerprints on so much of the great music um, that's been made in this city, um, you know, av- over the last several decades. Um, and uh, yeah. And I guess talking Bruce into um revising for the second edition of Bitten by the Blues, (laughs) probably something I'll have to start working on as well.
2: Thank you. Bruce Iglauer and Patrick A. Roberts, Bitten by the Blues, The Alligator Record Story, University of Chicago Press. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you once again for speaking with me here at New Books Network. It has been a pleasure.
1: Thanks very much, David. Thanks for inviting us.